Well, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word, your scriptures, to Ecclesiastes. We are indeed talking about our Father's world in this passage this morning. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We want to dig into God's Word here. We want to see what it tells us about God. The Bible is not something we just skim quickly through. The Bible is something we want to live in. We want to get in and dig and mine for diamonds. And so that's our goal here this morning. I've entitled the message simply God's providence over everything. Starting in chapter 3 verse 1 all the way through 15 of Ecclesiastes. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What profit or advantage is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing good for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that man should fear him. That which is has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Really, this whole passage that I just read to you is about God's providence. About God's control of all things. It is His world. And He has not only created it, but He has uh, continued to uphold it. And you have to ask yourself when you read a passage like this, or any of the ones in Scripture that talk about God's sovereignty or providence, do you accept and believe that? Do you really accept and believe that God controls all things, including every second of every day and every event that happens in your life, everything that's happened in the past, everything that will happen in the future? And if you do believe that, how does that change the way you live for God? How does that change the way a believer should live knowing that God controls everything for His purposes? We've been looking here at Solomon's life in chapters 1 and 2, and he's been taking us on a journey in the first couple of chapters all through the things he tried, the things that he chased after, the things that he idolized to bring meaning to his life, to bring an ultimate purpose, to bring an ultimate advantage when he died. And you'll see if you look back in chapter 1, verse 3, he opens up the whole book really with this question. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? What advantage? What's the point? Why do I do all of this? Why do I strive? And he chases many things, trying to find the answer to that question. And he had all the money that anyone could have. At that time and even today, really, he had more money than anyone alive today. He had more wisdom from God. And yet, what did he do with it? He chased after his own desires. He chased after his own thoughts, things that he thought were wise, and yet they don't match up with the wisdom of God. And he said, ultimately, all things are havel. All things are a mist, a vapor. They're like your life. It's here one day and gone the next. Even if you think you have something, it's like chasing the wind. You don't have anything when you catch it because your life is over so fast that even if you built up wealth, even if you built a business, even if you built a name for yourself, it's all gone when you die. So what is the point? What is it that we are supposed to strive for? 
Well, he gives us a bit of a hint by the time we ended with chapter 2, and we looked at this last week. But if you look at chapter 2, verse 24, he said, There's nothing good in man, that's a literal translation, there's nothing good in man that he is able to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? We can have nothing really meaningful in this life without God. Now there's more than just this life. But he says, at least in this life, as we toil and strive under the sun, under the curse that God has put upon the world from Genesis 3 forward, what is a good thing that we can receive from God? And it's food. It's the product of our labor. It's enjoyment of the things in life that God has given us. And then in verse 26, he even said that sinners work and toil and strive just to build up, to build up piles of gold, piles of things. And in the end, they just end up leaving them eventually to God's people. God takes all of those things and he gives them to those who are good, to those who are righteous, God's people. And so now the question comes up, how can that be? How does God do that? How can he make sure this group over here is doing this thing and his people, the righteous, those who will be saved, the elect, are doing uh, this certain thing and then he's able to take money from this category and transfer it over as the years roll by, as the centuries and millennia go by. And Solomon answers that in chapter 3. He says it's God's providence over all things. Now you won't see the word providence in there, but that's a theological term that we use in Christianity to describe God's control, God's upholding, God's continuing to work things out for His good purpose. Now in chapters 1 and 2, we saw very little theology. We saw very little about God, didn't we? It was all Solomon's experience. I tried this, I tried that, I found this. But now, and really from this point forward, we're going to see a lot about God. Chapter 3 is all about God. We're going to get into theology, from God's viewpoint. We're not just looking under the sun. We're not just looking from our viewpoint of striving and toiling and continuing to do the same old thing every day, but we're looking at it from God's viewpoint. Remember, all of this is inspired. It's not as if we're supposed to try all the things that Solomon did in chapters 1 and 2, but it is an inspired account of what he did try. And here we have an inspired account of God's providence in the world. Now, sometimes you hear words like sovereignty and providence. It's good to define them. Anytime we do theology, anytime we talk theology, you need a definition. Otherwise, we might be talking about two different things. You have in your mind a definition of providence, and I'm talking about something different. Let me define sovereignty very simply as God's right and authority to do all that he decides to do. The fact that God is in control, the fact that God is king, he has the right to do whatever He decides to do. That's God's sovereignty. It's very broad. Now, providence is him exercising that right. It's the doing of the right and authority that he has. And that doing deals with all things that have been created. He is keeping them. He is keeping them in existence. He is maintaining them. He also is cooperating with created things in every action. So it's not just that he created. That's not really his providence. That's his creation. But since he's created, what's he doing? He's keeping them in existence unless he decides to take them out of existence like our lives. We eventually do die. He also is cooperating with things in every action. So this comes from Grudem's systematic theology. I think it's a good three-point definition. So he keeps them in existence. He cooperates with them in every action. Why? Because he's directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act a certain way. We, t- we like to think that we're completely free. We can do whatever we want in life. But that's not true. God is the only one that is completely free. God is the only one that has complete, absolute free will. We are bound. We can't just do as we please. There are certain restrictions that we have. And even when we disobey God, ultimately, He's going to say that's His providence and his directing of things to be for good. So what is, what is providence? It's, it's God working out, exercising his sovereignty. He continues to exist and maintain things. He continues to cooperate with created things in every action. And then thirdly, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. 
And that's where Solomon is going to go with all of this. It's, it's for God's purpose that he does all things. God does all things to glorify himself, to glorify his name. And even the evil things that happen in God's creation ultimately are for his glory. Ultimately, they glorify him. And we'll look at some of those examples in a bit. Well, let's look how Solomon deals with this. This is not a, a New Testament systematic theology. Of course, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. And so in wisdom literature especially, it's very poetic. He does it in a certain way to describe God's sovereignty. And we take all the texts of Scripture and we put together our definition of God's providence. So let's see how Solomon does it here in the first eight verses. Uh, the main point there, point number one, is that God ordains every event in life. Everything that happens has been ordained by God. Nothing happens in this whole universe that's not been ordained by God, that's not been predetermined by God. So he starts off in verse 1 by saying that. There is an appointed time for everything. Everything. There's nothing that's not got its appointed time. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, there's two Hebrew words for appointed time and time. And so different translations try to, try to work out the differences of how to put that into English. But the first word there, appointed time, means a fixed time. A, a definite time chosen by God to bring something about. It's a very specific time that God has chosen to do a certain thing or to not do a certain thing. Ephesians 1.11 hints at this. It's, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, so it's not using the same Hebrew words. But Paul's writing about our salvation, and look how he describes it. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. An appointed time is God appointing things so that they are in the same line as the counsel of his will. He is working all things out for that purpose. The word for time here in Ecclesiastes 3.1 is just a general word for the times, the seasons. The King James even translates it here as purpose. There's a time and a purpose. And that's not too far off. This whole passage is getting at God's purpose. Think of Esther 4.14 also uses this Hebrew word, eighth. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You remember Mordecai's talking to Esther and she needs to act to save her people. And he said, God has appointed a specific time and place. You are right there where God wants you to be. Do something. Do something to save your people. You don't know if God has done all of these things in your past to put you right there so that you can do what is right. What's his point there in verse 1? Everything happens for God's purposes. Everything in God's created universe and in time happens because God has a fixed plan. There's no surprises for God. There's no accidents. Things don't just happen by chance. Now we sometimes talk like that because we can't see the big picture. But from God's viewpoint, there is no chance. There is no fate. There's simply God's plan being enacted in his creation. Now, Solomon is going to express this in a poem. And the poem you can see there in verses 2 through 8. If you were to count, though, you would see 14 pairs. And this is not a list of commands. Okay, let's keep the context in view here. It's not telling you use this as your time to plant chart, or your time to go out and have children, or your time to die. It's not a to-do list. It's not saying... Be wise in how you use these times that God has given us. It's just saying God is sovereign over all of these things. And so we have 14 pairs. And notice that Solomon has said, these are appointed times for every event under heaven. Now, under heaven sounds similar to under the sun, but it's slightly different, isn't it? Under heaven, under what's up there. Under the sky, yes, but... Even more so under God's viewpoint, under God's control. Under the sun is our perspective. We sweat, we toil, we strive. We try to do something in life, but then it all disappears. But from God's viewpoint, 
He sees all things from heaven and he is directing all things. And the reason we see pairs here is because it's talking about the universality of life. From the first to the last. From the beginning to the end. No matter how you look at it, God's in control of all things. He's talking about totality of all events. He's not just sovereign over one point. Not just sovereign over the things you like to think God is sovereign over. But all things. And everything. He controls every event in our life and has planned it out from the beginning. So let's start the poem here, verse 2. A time to give birth and a time to die. And it really should be translated give birth. If you have a different translation, it might say a time to be born. But the most literal here is a time to give birth. There's a time to have children. And God has appointed that. He's appointed the very second that you were born and that your children will be born. And even the moment that you die. From beginning to end. Everything in life. God has done it for a reason. Now, we don't know. What is that reason? Why was so-and-so born at this time and died at this time? We don't know. We're not God, and we're going to see that over and over. We are not God, but He knows it. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father's will. A little bird doesn't even die unless God has planned and determined and caused it to. That's how sovereign he is over all things. We got to think about this. Believers, we have to remember this every day. We can't just go through life thinking that everything we do has ultimate significance. No, God is in control and we are to obey him. We are to follow him. Yes, we make decisions. Yes, we have responsibility. But God is sovereign over all things. Those Two truths are all throughout Scripture. He continues with the poem here, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. God has set up seasons, and there's nothing we can do about it. We don't determine when spring starts. We don't determine when a a freeze is going to come to Texas and burst all our pipes. We don't determine when it's going to be 110 degrees in August here. God has done it, and He set it up from the very beginning. It says in Genesis 1.14, Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. Even after the flood, after Noah got off the ark, God said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is a good thing because God has designed it. You know, we have a lot of debates in my house about the temperature and what's too hot and what's too cold. And the girls like it freezing. And, and most of the sane people, I mean, most of the, the guys in our house, we, we like it a little warmer than that. But that's okay. God has designed both, hasn't he? Hasn't he? God has designed the cold and the hot. God has designed a fruitful season and the winter where everything dies. We often just think of, of God's creation, but not all the things that are going on behind the scenes, don't we? When, when it comes to his providence, everything, including gravity, the speed of light, planetary orbits, lunar tides, combustion, photosynthesis, meiosis, reproduction, digestion, emotions, thought processes, blood clotting, every molecule. When Jesus died on the cross, he was upholding all things, it says in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, read it. He is upholding all things. All the time? Yeah. Even as he's dying on the cross? Yes, through his divinity. We just do our best to make use of the way God has designed things. And we continue to work and strive, but God has laid out all the times and seasons. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. Again, not commands here. He's not telling you to go out and do this today. He's saying this is the way things are. Solomon is saying this is how life is. This is how the earth is. There's killing and there's healing. And the killing here is probably not murder, even though God would be sovereign over such evil events as murder as well. But killing is probably capital punishment. There's a time to punish the wicked. There's a time to take life because that person has taken a life. And there's a time to heal. There's a time to heal up the body, to heal up the tears and rifts that occur amongst people. And he says a time to tear down, a time to build up. 
God brings about destruction. He brings about rebuilding. Just read the Old Testament account of Israel. He brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. He brought about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He took the people out of the land. He brought them back into the land. He does the same for us every day. Now he talks about human emotions in verse 4. A time to weep and a time to laugh. These are, these are personal expressions of emotions. You know God is sovereign over your emotions? You know God has providentially upheld you so that you could have these emotions? And there is an appointed time that God has put in our life that we will indeed weep. And we will laugh. We will be happy. And God has already planned it. He's already determined it. He's also determined public expressions of emotion. A time to mourn. A time to go to funerals. And a time to dance. A time to celebrate. It's not surprising to God when someone dies. It's not surprising to God when someone has a wedding and we celebrate. Our child is born. All things are in his hands. Verse 5 now, he touches on friendships and enmity between people. A time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. Uh, If we put it in context with the next line, a time to embrace, a time to shun embracing. It's not talking about stoning here in in the sense of somebody being uh, punished for sins in the Old Testament. Uh, What they would do is they would gather up stones and remove them from the field when they wanted to cultivate the land. And when you wanted to make sure the land wasn't cultivated, it couldn't be by your enemy, you threw stones in their field. And now they can't plow it up, they can't work the land. And you'll see examples of that even in Second Kings, where they're told to go out and put stones in their enemy's fields. Verse 6, possessions. God's in control. He's, he's providentially over my possessions, yes. Time to search and a time to give up is lost. There's a time to go out and acquire things. And then there's a time to get rid of things or give up searching for things. We saw that with Solomon's life in chapter 1 and 2. You know, he was, he was searching for money. He was searching for pleasure, all of these things in life. And he realized, you know, it's time to give that up. It's time to come back to the Lord and focus on Him. Well, there's a time to keep, a time to throw away. Again, possessions. God has even appointed Times in our life for calamity, for what we might call a disaster or something evil done to us. Verse 7, a time to tear apart, a time to sew together. Tearing of garments in ancient times meant that you were in grief. You, you had a grief over either your sin, maybe a loss of a family member, maybe this great disaster that had come upon you like Job and his house or the nation of Israel. Or even a judgment. A judgment of God has come upon me. And the right response would be to tear your garments. Even the effects of sin. The effects of sin. I didn't actually sin to cause this, but someone else sinned against me and caused great harm. People would tear their robes. Then sewing garments back together speaks of peace. Speaks of prosperity. God has appointed all of that. Everything that is done. There's a time to be silent, a time to speak. Sometimes you need to speak out against sin. You need to speak out against evil. You need to speak out about what's happening in our world, in our country. What's happening to these unborn babies in the womb. Other times, other things, there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to not speak. And God's providence is over all of those times as well. Well, I thought I decided when to speak. You do. And God's providence is even over that. How does that work? How does that work that I'm making the decision, but God is in sovereign control of that? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It just says it's for His purpose. It doesn't detail the workings of God. His ways are inscrutable. They're unsearchable. We're not meant to know exactly how God does things. But He reveals things that He does, and we're to trust in Him. Charles Spurgeon used to say, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty... Two railroad tracks, they keep going. And as far as he could see, they never met. But he trusts that God knows what he's doing. Those two things keep on going throughout Scripture. Verse 8, there's a time to love, a time to hate. God is sovereign even over our affections. The affections that we have of the heart. 
even that men can hate others, is ultimately under God's control. He's working that out for his good, for his purposes. A time for war, a time for peace. What happens with the nations? Do the nations decide what's going to happen? Well, they think they do, but the Bible says that God is at work there too. Psalm 46, 8. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. We see this in God's dealing with Egypt. God did a specific thing in Egypt so that they would hate the Israelites. Psalm 105, verse 25, speaking of the Egyptians, He turned their heart to hate His people, to deal craftily with His servants. Could God do that? Do you remember Pharaoh? What did God do with Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? But it also says God hardened his heart. So which is it? Both. But on the other hand, the opposite, Exodus 11.3, the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So whether it's good or bad, as we saw in the book of Job, whether it's good or bad, It comes from the Lord. Shall we not accept good and also not accept the bad that comes? God is sovereign over all things. There's a time for war, a time for peace. Now, each of these things that we just looked at perform its own unique role in God's grand design, in God's plan. From beginning to end, no matter what aspect of life, no matter what category of life that you talk about, God's providence is there. In fact, the only way we know God's providence is just to look and see what's happened in the past. We can't look in the future and guess what it's going to be. We can't look in the future and know for certain what God's going to do. But we can just say, whatever has happened, that was in God's providence. He is controlling all things. He is upholding all things. I like the way the Heidelberg Catechism says it. Probably the best of the old Reformed catechisms that describe God's providence. Because it uses a lot of this language here. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? And so you would ask this often to your children with this catechism. They would repeat the answer they've memorized, but it's, it's a beautiful answer here. Here's the providence of God. The almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with His hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, and listen how, he, how the writers describe this, He so rules them that the leaf and the blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. God's our Father, and He's giving things to us. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's disciplinary. Sometimes it's good. We rejoice. And we rejoice when others rejoice. And we weep. And we weep when others weep. It says in the New Testament. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. I love Spurgeon. He's always got such good illustrations. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. Every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens, that the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from the poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. You know, when we have hurricanes, disasters, there's always someone who who says publicly, that's not God. God never did that. God's not in control of that. Well, then who is? Who is? Did God just wind up the clock and then step back? That's deism. That's not biblical Christianity. Is Satan given control over things? And suddenly God doesn't know what's happening? God might not be the direct cause of every single bad thing that happens. But He is still the indirect cause. Because the Bible says He is in control of all things. He doesn't clock out. He doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't take a break. He's always upholding and maintaining things for his purposes. So the first point, the first few verses, he's just describing what is. Now we have to ask, what do we do with that? So that's number two. Man should respond rightly to the providence of God. 
we have a response to this. It's not enough just to say, yes, I agree. I love the scriptures. There it is. That's the, that's the starting blocks. That's the first thing. But there's more. There's something we need to do. And he brings that up in verse 9. What advantage? Or profit, I think the NASB says. But it's advantage. Let's keep the word the same all the way through so we can track it through the book. What advantage is there to the worker from that in which he toils? What's the advantage? This is back to chapter 1, verse 3. What's the yitron in Hebrew? What's the ultimate profit? What's the surplus? When I'm gone, what's left over? What's the point, in other words? That's just an ancient Hebrew way of saying, what's the point of anything I do? What's the point of this thing I do in my life and this job that I go work at every single day and saving up money and building a house and having a family? What is the point? So God's given us providence. Okay, great. I'm glad he oversees all things. What does that mean for me as I get up every day and work? That ought not to always be about us. We shouldn't start with that question, right? We should start with who is God? And what has he done? And what has he done in Jesus Christ? But once we've answered that, now we need to ask how do we apply this? And so Solomon's doing that. He, he's a good preacher. Koaleth is the name that he gives himself here. That means preacher. He's going to give some application. How do we translate the fact of God's providence into application in our lives? And there's many applications throughout the whole Bible. He's not going to give them all here. He's going to give us five, five applications. There are others, especially in the New Testament, about God's special care for his people, about not worrying, not having anxiety because he's in control of all things. But here Solomon touches on five that we're going to work through in the rest of this passage. First of all, search for meaning beyond this earthly life. You've got to search for meaning beyond this life. This is not all there is. Verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. So all mankind has been given a task. We've been given something to do. And that's what he said back in 113. Chapter 1 verse 13. But he said it a little stronger there because he was mad. He was recounting his running from God, his backsliding. And he said it's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He was striving after all these idols in his life, all these things. And he came to despair over and over. And he says, it's such a grievous task. God gives us this task to work, 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 work. And it's just an affliction. Well, now he's described the providence of God. And he brings up this question again. And in verse 11, he says, he, God, has made everything appropriate, or more literal translated, beautiful in its time. God has made everything in its specific time, in its appropriate, even a beautiful time. God's providence is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, it's something that glorifies Him. And when we step back and see it, yeah, we would have to agree. We don't always like it when we're in the midst of it. It's beautiful. It glorifies His name. One commentator said that God has made everything beautiful. This little phrase here, that God has made everything beautiful in its own time. This commentator said it's the greatest statement of divine providence in the whole of Scripture. Not just that God has made it. Not just that God has made it and put it in a specific time in history. But that God made it appropriate. That God made it beautiful. That God had a purpose for it. Nothing happens that doesn't have a purpose. We tend to say it doesn't matter. Who cares? God never says that. He never says nothing matters. He never says who cares about this or that. Everything has a reason. So let's get to the search for meaning. So Solomon brings up the question. And he says, hang on. Now that I've got my right mind back, he says, now that I know more about who God is, he's made everything in its appropriate, beautiful time. He has also set eternity in their heart. So yes, God's given us a task. We're to work, we're to strive, we're to toil. And it's hard because of the curse. But God's done something else. He's set eternity in our hearts. We're made in his image. 
We've been appointed, Genesis 1 and 2 says, we've been appointed to go out and do something for God, to be his vice regents upon the earth, to be his ambassadors. Now, sin corrupted that. Sin caused problems with that mission. And Jesus came to restore that and make it even greater than Adam and Eve's mission. But Solomon says he's put eternity in our hearts. He's put in our hearts and minds the fact that we're eternal souls. That even though right now is hard, that's coming to an end. He's reminding us of death again. But more than that, he's saying that there's something after death. You see, when he was chasing idols and doing his own thing and backsliding from God, he said, what's the point? I'm just going to die and it's no big deal. All my stuff goes to somebody else. But now he says, there's something that lasts forever. And God has put it in us to know that. We're wired for eternity. When God created you, he put in your heart this idea that we're eternal. That's why every other religion is trying to search for some way to prolong their eternal blessedness after they die. And it's always works-based, except for biblical Christianity. And Solomon says God's put that there. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So we know, we know there's an eternity. And we know we're supposed to search out how we obtain this eternal blessedness this eternity with God, but yet God has frustrated that, hasn't he? That's his plan. That's what he told Adam and Eve. There's going to be frustration. It's not going to be easy. Man can't find out what God has done from the beginning even to the end. You don't know what God is doing in your life. You don't know what God is doing in the world. You may not like the way the election went. You may not like that the last year has been horrible and things have shut down. But you really don't know what God is doing because you don't know the beginning from the end. Where is this all going? Now, ultimately, it's going towards Christ's return. But you don't know God's purposes. All we can do is trust God. All we can do is, is search for the meaning that God has given us in life. And he's been real clear in the Bible. It's not like he didn't leave us pages and pages and pages to read and study, to figure this out. Some of us can't even read through it in a year. There's plenty there. We've got to search for meaning beyond this earthly life. Now, for the believer, you should know what that is. That's, that's eternity with Jesus Christ. That's serving the Lord now and being with Him forever. For the unbeliever, they know there's eternity. They try to resist it. They try to run from it. They try to out sin, any grace that they think God might give them. But sometimes even believers run from this idea that God's in control of all things and that he's put eternity in our hearts. We just run off into sin. We forget that there's something after this life. We know, yeah, that's good, that's biblical, I heard that at church. But sometimes believers run into a period of sin like Solomon did. We've got to remember the meaning that God has given us now and beyond this life. Jonathan Edwards said, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. He meant that every time he looked out, he wanted to be reminded there's eternity coming. There's eternity coming. It's not just about right now. It's not just about getting my good feelings and emotions and everything I want right now. So that's number one, search for meaning beyond this earthly life. The second application that Solomon makes is... Live holy before God. Live holy before God. If you know there's a God and you know there's an eternity that will either be spent with Him or being punished by Him, then what should you do? In other words, if you're saved, what should you do? You should be holy as God is holy. You should seek to be sanctified. You should live a holy life. He says this in verse 12. I know that there's nothing Good is a more, I like the more literal translation because this comparison idea that our translators put in there is, makes it a little more muddier. Literally, I know that there's nothing good for them except to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. There's nothing good in ourselves. He already told us that at the end of chapter two. And there's nothing really good in this life except to be thankful to God and to do good. What's do good? To live holy, to live a righteous life. 
not to earn your salvation. Who's, who's reading Ecclesiastes? God's people are supposed to be reading Ecclesiastes in the Bible. So it's God's people who look and say, okay, what do I do? He says, be thankful and live a holy life before God. That's what you see over and over in the New Testament epistles. Okay, now that I'm saved, how do I live? Be thankful, give God the glory for everything he's given you, and live according to his commandments. You know, I mentioned be holy as God is holy. That's found in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all throughout. God's people ought to live according to his commandments. We'll see it in a minute when we look at the end of the book that he very clearly states that. Number three, third application. Give thanks and be content with God's gifts. So it's already come up in verse 12, but now we see in verse 13, moreover, in addition, in other words, every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. And we already saw this, didn't we, at the end of chapter 2. It's the gift of God. Are you being thankful for how God has providentially given you these things? Are you complaining? Are you always unhappy? I never get what I want. Why isn't God giving me what I want? Because God knows best. Why didn't your parents give you everything you wanted when you were a child? You give your kids everything they want? No, that's going to spoil them. It's going to cause them to want to sin even more. To throw a fit when they don't get what they want. Give thanks. Be content for what God has given you. Don't go through life always thinking you know best. And God hasn't done what you wanted him to do. James Chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, come now, you who say today, tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit. Yet you do not know that your life, what it will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. You see, he's pulling this forward from Ecclesiastes. You're just a mist. You're a vapor. You're Hevel. Appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If it's in the Lord's plan, if it's in God's providence, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast, James says. You're boasting and you're arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. You're boasting. You think that you determine what happens tomorrow. You can make plans. The Bible says make plans. You can have goals. You can strive for those goals. You can work. You can labor for those goals. But don't be boastful. Don't think that you determine what happens tomorrow, next week, next month. God does. It's a gift of God. Be thankful for it. All of life, really. Fourth application, fear God. Fear God. Now this is explicit here in, in verse 14. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take from it. Can you add to what God has done? Can you add to what God is going to do? Can you subtract from what God has done or what God is going to do? You don't have a say in God's plan. If we had a say in God's plan, we would just mess it up. Sort of like your salvation, right? If you could lose it, you would. You would, you would lose it. You would throw it away. But thank the Lord we can't because he is sovereign over it. Thank the Lord that he knows what's good for our life. He knows what's good for us. For God has so worked that men should fear him. God has so worked in men's hearts and the way he made us so that we should fear him. He's created us like this. Go to chapter 1 of Romans, the book of Romans. Now let's see how Paul says it here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his Invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. It's this idea of eternity, this idea that we have a creator. That's clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Everyone's without excuse. No one can really say, I didn't know there was a God. Because he made creation to show us there's a God. If you go on to chapter 2 of Romans, he put it in our hearts. So that we would know. Go back to verse 19. Because that which is known about God 
is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So what Solomon is saying there in Ecclesiastes 3.14 is that God has done all things. He will do exactly as he's planned to do. And he works things so that men should fear him. Everything is designed so that men should fear him. And you say, well, that's bad. Fear of God? Well, it is for the unbeliever. Because they have, they have a sinful fear of God. They fear God's wrath. And what, the, what do they do? They invent their own way to get around God's wrath. Or they just run off into sin and they're so fearful of God, they run away from Him doing whatever they want. That's a sinful fear of God. But believers should have a godly fear of God, a right fear of God. And that's what Solomon's getting at here. He's God, we're not. And as His people, we ought to look to Him, learn how to live a godly life in this world and under His sovereignty. What is the fear of God? Well, it's, it's awe. It's reverence, but it's also love, zeal, passion, an intense love for God. When people saw the the risen Christ, when John sees Christ in Revelation, he doesn't run away, does he? What does he do? He falls down in worship because the glory of his appearance is so great. He had a proper fear of God. It's worship. It drives us to worship. It drives us to obey his commandments. That's where this whole book of Ecclesiastes is going. And I know we look at it almost every week, but you really have to. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Go there with me. 12, 13, and 14. And this is how he sums up the book. What's the whole point of all that he's saying in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, here it is. The conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Everyone should do this. Unbelievers can't. They don't have a new heart. They don't have a changed heart. They, they run away from God and have a sinful fear. But, but those of faith have a, a faithful fear, a godly fear. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. When you sin as a believer, the proper fear of God says, I don't want to do this to my father. He's good to me. He's given me all these things, including salvation. How wonderful is that? You're not not fearful of being thrown into hell. You're fearful of his discipline. You're fearful of disappointment. You have a proper fear of God. And that's what we should have, Solomon says. When you understand God's providence, you will fear him rightly and all the more. Because he's controlling everything. Your breath you're taking right now, your heartbeat, the number of heartbeats you have in your life, That ought to draw you into a true fear of God. Our fifth application, our last one here. Know that God directs all things to His purposes. All things. To His purposes. It's not just that God upholds things to keep them going. He's not just a mechanic back there keeping everything tuned up for no reason. He's doing it for His purpose. And the Bible displays all the purposes of God. Solomon doesn't pretend to catalog them all here in verse 15. But he mentions the big picture, that God operates with all created things, and he's causing them, either directly or indirectly, as I mentioned earlier, to act through their properties, meaning through their own desires, through their own will. And through this, he's going to accomplish his ultimate purpose, which is to glorify himself. Look at verse 15. That which has already, or that which has been already, and that which will be, has already been. Now that's very enigmatic. That's very philosophical. That's Solomon right there, isn't it? That which has already been done. Things that have happened in the past. And and that which will be, has already been. So what's coming in the future is just a sort of cycle back around to the same things that happened in the past. It's not that we're on this hamster wheel and we have to try to get off somehow. No, it's that God keeps bringing these things back around for a reason. Because we don't learn the first time. And the second time. And the third time. And the hundredth time. And the thousandth time. Humanity doesn't learn. And we personally don't learn. We're stubborn. We're stubborn. The Bible says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
It's not wrong to plan. Man is planning his way, and he often plans according to his desires. So if he's a believer, he ought to desire Christ and his glory. An unbeliever will desire his own pursuit of things in the world. But God's actually directing everyone's steps. And you don't realize it when you take that step towards your goal, but God is directing it. And then he finishes out with this last phrase, for God seeks what has passed by. Now this verse has caused a lot of trouble amongst commentators and preachers and Bible translators. Depending on the translation, it could be various different ways they try to bring this out. It's difficult to understand what's going on here. But I think the best understanding, the literal translation will help us. I'll use the NET Bible. For God will seek to do again what has occurred in the past. You've got to put it in context with what he just said. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. And God will seek to do again what's occurred in the past. God's control over all things. He not only controls them, but he repeats them and he repeats them. Solomon wanted to run from God. Remember Solomon's running from God? And what did God do to Solomon? What did God do to Jonah? He just kept coming back. God doesn't just let us go. If we're his, he comes after us. Didn't he come after Jonah? He sent a fish to swallow Jonah up. Well, what did he do with Solomon? He showed Solomon, this isn't it. All these things I'm chasing, that's not right. It's not God. Solomon was running out of time when he wrote Ecclesiastes. He was about to die. He's old. And he's learned the hard way. And he's writing this down for us. The Lord's going to keep bringing these things around so that we'll learn. And you say, well, I've learned my lesson, God. Well, he'll still bring it back around to make sure you've learned your lesson. And make sure others can learn the lesson that the world needs to know, which is to fear God and obey his commandments. Psalm 115.3, but... Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. God has a purpose for everything. The Bible is so clear. You might be thinking, this is the first time I've heard this. This is a hard teaching. I thought I had ultimate free will or even a, a great measure of free will. How can I be free if God has determined all these things? Well, the Bible says He has. Genesis 45, 5, speaking of Joseph here, Joseph's talking to his brothers here. He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me. They sold him into slavery. But he says, don't be angry, don't grieve, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me here so I could help Pharaoh store up all this food so that you could come down here and get the food and survive. Now skip over to Genesis 50, verse 20. It's one of the great verses in the Bible on God's providence. Speaking to his brothers again, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it, that evil that they committed by selling him into slavery. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So who's doing it? The brothers? Yeah, they did do something, didn't they? They committed a sin. But God was over it. God was providentially over all things, including that sin, and he preserved life. God meant it for good. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, God, turns it wherever he wishes. The president of the United States, God turns his heart wherever he wishes. He can use our leaders to judge us for our sin and our nation. He can use the leaders to bless us and anywhere in between. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Even the good desires we have come from God. He is willing in us. He is causing our wills to line up with His. We have, I have no problem with that. I don't want ultimate free will, because where is that going to lead me? To hell. Nobody actually has it anyway. God wouldn't be in control if you had ultimate free will. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, not some things, all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can't change God's plans. You can't thwart his plans. Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson. God had to teach him a lesson, didn't he? Here's what he said in Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. 
Not, not that God doesn't care about his creation, but compared to God, they're counted as nothing because he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You can't say to God, God, you better get down here and explain it to me right now. What have you done? That's a joke. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There's no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. When God starts something, he already knows where it's going to end. And from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. If you know God is good and you trust in Him, you want Him to be in control of all things. He already is anyway, but you're glad to hear that truth. What about evil, though? Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things, evil things, all things. Solomon says everything, even my own sin. Yeah, God's not approving of your sin and you shouldn't continue to do it, but all of that is for a purpose. You don't even sometimes know what that is. Acts 2.23, this man delivered, he's talking about Christ here, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who put Jesus on the cross? The Jews or the Romans? Both. Or God? Yes. All of them. That's what the verse says. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan, the providence of God. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So Jesus is put there by God in the holy city, Jerusalem. And it says, Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The biggest sin that ever happened in the world. The killing of God the Son on the cross. And it was all predetermined by God. The greatest evil. I think if God predetermined the greatest evil, then he can predetermine all things that happen. We have to accept that. We have to come to the realization that God is sovereign. He has the right to do as he pleases. He is good, so it will always be for good for his people. And ultimately, it will glorify himself. I'll go back to Spurgeon on this. Because sometimes we resist this so much, don't we? That God is in control. We like it when we want Him to be in control, but other times we don't like it, especially unbelievers. Spurgeon says, Men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop, to fashion worlds and make stars. They allow Him to be in His almondry, to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth, bear up the pillars of the earth, light the lamps of heaven, rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean, But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. When we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. The world hates this idea that God's on his throne. That's not the world's view of God, but it's the biblical view of God. It's in the Bible. I'll just close with a reading of Heidelberg 28, the next question after defining what God's providence is. Listen to this. What does it benefit us? What's what's the point? What's the application of God's providence? What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. In other words, we don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder. We know that if God is in control, then He's got it. He's handling it, and he's completely capable of doing so. In other words, let's not try to be God ourselves. Not only should we not chase idols, but we shouldn't try to put ourselves on the throne over God, determining everything that's supposed to happen in our life. Be thankful. Fear God. 
and know that he's doing all things for his purpose. Can we agree with that? Amen. Got one amen? How about more? Oh, I got lots of amens. Lord, thank you so much for your providence. You had it all planned from the beginning. We trust in you. We know that you're good. And we know that if it's for your good, for your purposes, for your glory, then we say, great. We say amen to that, Lord. So help us to remember it, to apply it throughout our day as we hear this teaching. And remember, you're in charge, you're in control. In Jesus' name, amen.